0: How many how many of you guys when I say this phrase how many of you guys know what it means ad astra per aspera Anyone know what that is okay we got a couple of people couple of people ad astra per aspera How many people were born and raised in Kansas Okay come on guys It's the it's the motto the Kansas motto ad astra per aspera It means to the stars through difficulty exactly yes yes and I'm wearing my uh, Kansas motto shirt today uh, as a proud Kansan. Um, I've decided, you know, so many people are so down on Kansas so often. Oh, Kansas, Kansas. I was just talking to someone the other day. And I was like, oh, Kansas, drove through Kansas, flat, no trees. Like, come on. Come on. Where did you drive? Like, the Flint Hills are fantastic. I mean, yeah, there's not very many trees. I'll give you that. But whatever. Anyways, I've decided to not be down on Kansas. I've decided that I'm going to be a proud Kansan. And uh, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, my great-great-grandpa came here in the late 1800s from Pennsylvania. And by golly, I'm going to be proud about it. So ad astra per aspera. I've always actually, since I was a kid in grade school and I learned the phrase, I've always, there's always been something about it that resonated with me. To the stars through difficulty. You know? Yeah. Something motivational, I think. Uh, uh, John James Ingalls, who uh, stole the phrase from somewhere else, to be honest, and brought it and suggested it as the motto of Kansas. Um, that was his, you know, his hope was that it would inspire people to come and settle in Kansas and to, to achieve those, those dreams that they have here in the Kansas Territory. So... So there's that. Sometimes though, as much as that can be a good thing to inspire us to keep going through difficulty, sometimes there's a way in which that can creep into my faith that, that can maybe be a little bit uh, um, a deceptive. You know, when I'm doing well in my following of Christ, I can begin to take a little bit too much credit upon myself. And when things are going rough and when things are difficult, it can create some doubt. When I have to sacrifice, it can create some questions about whether or not that sacrifice is really worth it really worth what I get in Christ. My guess is in your Christian life, there have been times when, when you've had to do the right and hard thing in your pursuit of him. And, and you're not doubting whether it was the right thing. You're not doubting whether that's what God would want you to do, or whether that's what God's word would say that you ought to do. But really the question comes in is, is this gonna actually work out? Is this worth it? Is this valuable? And in those moments, I think sometimes we can begin to wonder, man, I've given up so much for Christ. Or We can think this way. I've given up so much for Christ. And will I make it? Will I make it to the stars, if you will? Our passage, it starts with this phrase, after these things and i think the author of genesis really wants us to understand that what's about to happen in chapter 15 we need to understand it in the context of what just happened in chapter 14 so let me remind you if you weren't here the last 2 weeks or or if you just kind of forgot that's okay let me remind you god had worked through abram to deliver lot and a whole bunch of other people from the hands of these invading uh, kings. And Melchizedek had come out and had declared God's blessing on Abram. And there was kind of a, an exchange there. And, and then Abram had turned down the great possessions of the wicked king, the king of Sodom, that, that had, he had been offered him in exchange or, or because Abram had saved his, him and his people. And Abram said, no, you're a, you're a wicked king and God will bless me and I won't take those possessions. And I wonder if there wasn't a little bit of doubt or question in his mind as he went away from that particular situation. And I wonder that because of, of our passage today. Now, I don't, I don't think that there's any doubt in Abram's mind that what he did was the right thing, that he it was right for him to go and save Lot, that it was right for him to turn down the king of Sodom's offer. But I wonder if defeating those armies might have put a little bit of a target on his back. I wonder if seeing all those riches and saying no, if he walking away, he's like, oh man, you know how, much, how long it'll take me to earn that much money? Whew. That was, my, that was my retirement nest egg. I just turned it down. See, God made promises to Abram, and he continues to re-emphasize those promises, promises of blessing, promises of offspring, promises uh, uh, of land. But today, we're going to see that those promises shift from promises to covenant. I think... What we've seen in Genesis is a lot of language that that is like a covenant, but here it will be expressly said, this is my covenant. God's made these promises and those promises are true for Abram right now. Right then in chapter 12 and chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, those promises are true, but they are not yet fulfilled, right? And for us, as Christ followers, God has made promises. And they're true right now. If you're in Christ, you, we would say you are saved. And yet, they're not fully fulfilled are they? We are not yet with Christ in eternity in that sense. We're not yet glorified with Christ. And in the meantime, as we face difficulty, as we face these decisions, in the meantime, there's moments where we wonder, how is this going to work out? And is it worth it? Even for those of us who have faith, there are times when we need We need reassurance of God's promises. And and here's what I want you to walk away with today. What I want you to see from the passage is this, that, that it's God's covenant. It's the covenant that he makes that reassures God's people of God's promises. God's covenant reassures God's people of God's promises. And so what I'm going to attempt to do today is to explain what's happening here, explain this covenant between God and Abram, how it relates to Christ, and to give you a few reassurances from the text that come to us through his covenant. So, so after these things, the word of the Lord comes to Abram, telling him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? I want you to understand that the, this formulation of how uh, the Lord is speaking in Jewish literature, this is what they would call an oracle of salvation an oracle of salvation. God's word here isn't a response directly to anything that Abram has said or done. It just comes. God just comes and says, hey, what's up? I'm going to save you. Trust me. I don't think he said it like that, but that's my modern take. And God promises that he will be what? That he'll be Abram's protection and Abram's provision, right? Hey, I know that all happened. And there were these warring kings and you had to do all this stuff. But I want you to remind you, I'm your shield. I'm your protection. Hey, I know you turned down all those possessions. There's a lot of stuff. But I want you to know that I'm your provision. Abram recognizes something. He recognizes what good is it if I get all of these things? What good is it to have all these blessings in this life from God if I have no one to pass any of that down to? God, you've promised me offspring, but I, but I have no son. The closest thing I have is this guy, Eleazar of Damascus, right? In our world today, I, I think it has a hard time. I think we... Uh, Living in the world that we live in today, have a hard time understanding how important this is. You see the natural outworking of a materialistic, atheistic worldview that is so prevalent today, meaning meaning that we often only believe in the material world, nothing spiritual, nothing beyond that. The outworking of that is you get what you can while you can, because once you die, it all ceases to matter. Now, many atheists won't actually say it that way because they're inconsistent in their belief, but if they actually believe what they say they believe, then then there's no other way around it. Get what you can now while you can because when you die, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore. For Abram... Perpetuation of his family is critically important. And what we'll find out is, what we'll find out here is that, particularly, it's important for Abram because the promise of his physical offspring will come to mean there will be a child from him by which God brings about Abram's spiritual offspring. So verse 4, after Abram says, what, Okay, God, but, but what could you give me that will really matter that much when I don't actually have, when my heir isn't actually my biological son? Verse 4, God responds, and behold. So there's this an emphatic reply to him. And he, and he says what? He says, this will be your very own son. You see, you see there was a, a way in which in the ancient world you might adopt a servant from your household as your heir in the case that you never actually end up having a biological son. So that's what's happening here. A, Abram is saying, I don't have an heir. I just got uh, this guy to pass my stuff down to, is is this the avenue you're going to do this through God? And God says, no, no, you'll have your very own biological son. And then he takes him outside and it's night and he shows him the stars in the sky. Just count the stars in the sky. I can't, I can't count all the stars in the sky. There's too many. Again, this is something that is hard for us to grasp. In our modern world, because we've got, you know, living in, this, in a city, you've got so much light. But if you've ever been out somewhere, like say you've been camping out in the middle of nowhere in Colorado or, or wherever, and you look up in the sky at night and there's no other lights around and you see just how many stars there, there are, you, you're like, I didn't even know that was in the sky. I never seen that before. And I remember last year, uh, I went camping in Colorado, and I think it was probably the farthest away from civilization that I had ever been. And I took the rain fly of my tent, and I, it wasn't going to rain, and so I rolled it down off, and I could see up into the sky. And you just, you're like, whoa. That's what he means. There's so many stars that it almost looks like just, just a a mat of stars. And he says, look, this is how your descendants are going to be. Countless. And so the, the point of this oracle of salvation is that God promises, he promises salvation to his people. And it's not he is that salvation. He is that provision. He is that protection. And God is saying, look, I've started something with you, and I'm going to finish what I started. You see, oftentimes when we think about salvation, we think about one of two things. We either think about what is technically called justification, right? How does God justify us? How are we made right? In God's eyes, that kind of moment where, yes, Jesus, I accept you, or however you want to say it, and we think about salvation in those terms, or we think about salvation in terms of eternal salvation. I'm going to spend eternity with God, but really when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about all of that from from Ephesians 1, 4, where it says, For God chose you before the foundation of the world all the way until our glorification with Christ in eternity. And in Revelation 21, all of that is salvation. And God is saying, look, for my people, I finish what I start. Abraham, I started something with you, and I will finish it. You will be saved because I am your protection and your provision. And so then we get verse 6. It's kind of this interlude in the middle of this, this exchange between God and Abram. And it says, and he believed the Lord and he, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now we've heard this before. This phrase. And when you read this in the English translations that we have, I think it's easy to assume some sort of sequence or chronology here, that this, this thing happened between uh, uh, God and Abram, where God takes Abram out and he sees these stars, and then, because of that interaction, then Abram believes, and it's counted to him as righteousness. But that's not actually that's not actually what's happening here. There's a little nuance that we don't catch. You see in Hebrews 11:8. Clearly the New Testament says that Abram's faith, the faith that was counted to him as righteousness, started in Genesis 12 when he believed God and he left Ur. And so the New Testament, I understand, the New Testament is the best commentary that we have on the Old Testament, right? Am I right? It's the only divinely inspired commentary. And so when the New Testament says, this is how you should understand this thing in the Old Testament, it's right 100% of the time. Okay? So that, there can't be sequence. And even, now I'm not an expert in Hebrew. I'm going to admit to you. I'm not an expert in the Hebrew language. Surprising, right? However, there are other people who are. And did a little studying and trying to understand what's getting lost in translation here. The phrase here is not, the Hebrew construction that would indicate sequence. This happened and then that. Rather, it's better to understand verse 6, either as a parenthetical statement, as in, remember, guys, this happened. Remember, Abram was one who believed in the Lord and the Lord had counted it to him as righteousness. Or as a statement of, on, of an ongoing reality, as in, Abram continued believing in the Lord and the Lord had counted that faith to him as righteousness. And I think what's happening here is we have this interchange between Abram and God at the beginning where God's saying, hey, look, remember, these are my promises. And then we're going to have this covenant established wherein God reassures him of those promises. And in the middle, we find this basis for that. And it's not what Abram does. It's the faith that Abram has in God's promises. And the writer of Genesis wants us to remember that fact. That Abram had faith. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Didn't credit it to him. It's not a wage. It was a gift. Counted it to him as righteousness. And so the point of this one verse, and it's a huge point, is this. God's people have faith in God's promises. God's people have faith in God's promises. Now, now comes the big chunk of the passage where God establishes this covenant. And we've, you know, we've lost, again, we've lost so much of the importance of covenants in our world today, you know. We are so quick to make commitments and then to drop those commitments when we think there's something else that's better, right? Uh, that's the world we live in. Commitment, it, it, we have no commitment to the meaning of the word commitment. The covenant was more than a mere commitment between two people, it was an agreement between two parties where typically there would be certain responsibilities for each party and there would be certain blessings for keeping those, those commitments and there would be certain curses. For keeping or for breaking those commitments. That's what a covenant was. It was incredibly important. To break a covenant was, you might as well die. This covenant explanation, it starts in verse 7. He says, I am the Lord who. I want you to understand this is the same way this is the same way if we fast forward to Exodus that God uh, establishes his covenant with his people at Mount Sinai it starts with the identification of who God is I am the Lord I am the Lord I Want you to 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 see this. I'm trying to explain. There there is this redemptive history that is happening, and it has all of these key points. And as we go along, God is progressively revealing what his promises mean and what he's going to do. And so we're seeing that in Abram's life, right? Chapter 12, we saw a bit of it. And then this chapter, chapter 15, we're gonna see a bit of it. And when we get to chapter 17, it's gonna be a greater revelation of it. When we get to chapter 21, there's gonna be an even greater revelation of it. And as that goes along throughout the hall of scripture, we see it revealed more and more and more. we get to Jesus, right? So there's all these connecting points. And so if I'm the original audience of Genesis, I'm an Israelite walking in the wilderness on my way to the promised land, the land that is promised to Abram right here, I'm reading this and I'm thinking about the ways in which... I'm living the very things that are promised to Abram. Generations in slavery. Until God delivers them out of it. Brings them to the promised land. For us, as we're reading this, I want you to see that this is part of the history of how Christ came and saved us is a foreshadowing of what Christ has done for us. And so Abram asks, how will I know? Uh, he requests a sign. Now, we can think of this as, as doubting. I'm not, sure, I'm not so sure that, that it's actually, the Bible actually sees this as a bad thing. In fact, oftentimes in the Old Testament, refusing a sign from God actually demonstrated a lack of faith. But God conveys this covenant in three parts. I want you to see this. In three parts, there's first a part about preparing the animals. And then there's a a much more clear part about this this chronological uh, perspective of the foretelling of the future of Abram's descendants, right? And then there's this final part wherein God strikes this covenant. I'm going to attempt to explain these three parts, but I'm going to be honest. There's some disagreement amongst scholars as far as what each of these pieces mean. However, while there's disagreement about maybe particular elements, uh, the overall understanding is really, really clear. The overall thrust is this. God's covenant guarantees his promises. It's his covenant that is guaranteeing his promises. That is the point of what's going on here. So we know that the preparation of animals is a preparation for making this this covenant with Abram. And some people think that in verses 9 and 11, as we see these animals split in two, that it, it's symbolic of God's people, while others maybe see it just merely as a sacrifice uh, to consecrate the covenant. Where I uh, tend to lean is in Jeremiah 34. If you want to read this later? You can. I won't... Go into all the details, but in Jeremiah 34 we see the closest parallel to what's happening here, and in that you see a covenant between people being struck, and God speaking into that, and essentially the lesser vassal king right makes makes this covenant, and in that covenant he would pass between animals that have been split in two, and so you we talked about this a couple weeks ago. There were suzerain kings. Who were the strong kings, and they had vassal kings under them, who would who would kind of uh, rule a particular area on their behalf, and the vassal king would, would 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 give tribute to the big king, and the big king would say, "Okay, I'm I'm you know I defend you and I'll protect you, and uh, I won't you know squash you uh, if you continue to give me tribute." That's how it how it worked. And so they would make this covenant and they'd split these animals and basically you'd walk through the animals and and essentially would say, hey, if you break this covenant, what happened to these animals is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be split in two. So in Jeremiah, God is saying, you have transgressed my covenant and I will make you like the calf that you walked between. Pretty serious words. You see, we've lost a lot of the meaning and the depth of what a covenant is. So, what about these birds? Birds of prey. Well, in the prophets, throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, uh, birds of prey always symbolized outside nations that want to come in and pick off God's people by tempting them away to other gods. And so, you see, Abram, they're clearing off these birds of prey. No, get away, get away. God's preserving his people, setting them apart from all of the other nations, from all the other gods, just for him. Now that this covenant is prepared, God tells him what the sign is. This is how he and his descendants will know that God will do it. He says, you're going to be so generous and you're going to be servants and you will be afflicted. For 400 years it will happen until... Till God brings judgment upon those who are afflicting them. Of course, the original reader would go, well, that's e- this, the Egyptians. That's just what happened. We just went through that. We just experienced that. But in the meantime, he says, Abram, for you, you're going to die. You're going to die before you, this all happens. Now, now, now you're going to live to a good old age, Right. He reassures them, you're gonna to live to a good old age and it will be in peace. Abraham Abram won't experience these afflictions that his descendants will, but he also won't he also won't see all what God's promised come to fruition. Now, why, why the long delay? Well, he tells us the, why the long delay. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Remember, Abram is living amongst the Amorites. In fact, some Amorite people had helped him in his endeavor to free Lot. And so he says, you know, hey, their iniquity isn't, hasn't got to its fullness yet. See, later on, if you're, reading, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, maybe some of you guys are reading through the Bible a year, later on, you're going to see a passage where God's going to n- instruct the people of Israel to go in and to wipe out the Amorites completely. And you go, how could God do that? That, feels, that seems so unfair, so, so kind of angry and just flippant, maybe even racist. Is that really who God is? Well, we have to go back and we have to remember this passage. No, God is not. God is perfectly just. In fact, God puts his people through 400 years of affliction just because it's not yet just for him to wipe out the Amorites. And so that brings us to the last part. The animals are prepared. And it's apparently taken Abram all day to get them prepared uh, because it's getting dark again. And it says that, it, that, that Abram sees this smoking pot and this flaming torch pass through these pieces. Now, now what, what in the world does that mean? Well, again, guys, we have to think about the original audience. What would, what would the people of Israel walking in the wilderness immediately think of when they read smoke and fire passing through? Well, they would think of the pillar of fire by night, and the cloud of smoke by day that they've been following through the wilderness, God's very presence. And so what we see here is God's presence. Not, not the vassal king, not Abram, not us, but God's presence walking through the pieces saying, no, this covenant, on this covenant, I swear it upon myself that this will happen. It is not dependent on you doing something. It is dependent on me doing something. King of Kings passes through. Now, all of this, you might think, okay, Cody, I hear all that. That sounds really neat and interesting. If I was really interested in Old Testament history or whatever, but what in the world does this have to do with us? My friends. I want you to know it has everything to do with us. What we need to do is look at the New Testament, Galatians three fifteen. It says this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. That's what we see here. God is ratifying a covenant. Verse 16 of, Genesis, of Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ? While there is a type of fulfillment that we'll see in Abram having Isaac eventually and later descendants, the true fulfillment of these promises is found in one physical descendant of Abram, Jesus Christ. One person, God says, I'm making this covenant with you, and I will one day. Yeah, 400 years, you're going to have to wait. In 400 years, through a lot of affliction, I will bring my people out of Egypt, but really the fulfillment is a few thousand years away, and you'll have to wait. But through the line of Abram, I will bring my very own son. My very own son. And in just as Romans four reiterates that the true spiritual descendants of Abram are those who share his faith, the faith that Abram had, Galatians three. 25 and 26 go on to say, but now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so through Christ, the physical descendant of Abram, we now are adopted as sons of God and sons of Abram through faith in Christ. That is because of the unconditional covenant of salvation that finds its fulfillment in Christ Through faith in him, we who have faith share in these promises. And we know that he will one day bring us to the promised land. And what is the promised land? Hebrews says that the land that Abram looked forward to was not not a land of this earth. Hebrews 11 tells us that it was the new Jerusalem, a spiritual land and kingdom what we see at the end of the story in Revelation 21. See, we who have faith in the gospel just as Abram did, we look forward to that land, the new heavens and the new earth with Christ Jesus himself reigning on the throne. But what guarantee do we have that we'll make it to that land? When, when the difficulties come, when People die like Abram has promised that he'll die. When we suffer, like Abram has promised that his descendants will suffer. What gets us through? When we walk through the wilderness that's wrought with afflictions and sufferings, as the first readers of Genesis were doing, as they experienced delay that seemed hopeless as they faced death promise that it will be finished. And yet, friends, do not forget that all of these promises are fulfilled in Christ, the one who was afflicted for us, the one who faced death for us and defeated it, the one who lay seemingly hopeless in the grave and yet rose from the dead on the third day. Yeah. That is the God who promises us. Yeah. And it will happen because he has covenanted that it will be so and he will not break that covenant. He has not. He's proven it in his son. And so, I want to give you a few quick reassurances. Things that you couldn't remember as you're traveling through this wilderness on the way to the promised land. First, God's blessings go beyond the here and now. See, Abram passed up the here and now wealth of the king of Sodom for what God had promised for for God's protection and, and his provision. Even while Abram became quite wealthy, it's clear that God's intent for him was not the here and now. And Abram understood that his here and now wealth wasn't the ultimate goal. It was the eternal and spiritual that he longed for the security of your salvation isn't determined, friends, by whether or not you think God is blessing you in this moment. There's no direct connection between, well, God's blessing me, so I must be in his good graces, or he's not, so I must not be in his good graces. It's been won by Christ, and it's sealed by his Holy Spirit. Second, God's word answers our present questions. Listen, God's word answers your questions before you even ask them. I want you to know that. Sometimes God's word answers the question you never even thought of, but is actually the question that you need answered. Abram never even says anything, and God comes to him and says, Hey, don't be afraid. Let me tell you, don't be afraid. I'm your protection and your provision. God revealed himself and his redemptive work in the world through his son. And he's put all of that redemptive history in his word, in the scriptures. And the Bible is sufficient for everything that we need. Everything that we need for faith, everything that we need to live for Christ. It's all right here. Would you turn to it instead of turning to other things? Third, salvation is determined by faith. And it's demonstrated by works, not the other way around. Romans 4 and James 2 both quote verse 6 and use it to reveal that Abram was counted righteous by faith and that that faith produced action. But even in this passage, we see that Abram's faith results in his obedience to God's command to prepare the animals those who have faith in Christ, they have no reason to doubt their salvation because they don't think that their works have to stack up to some standard. Yet, we know that if we do have faith, that the Spirit will begin producing obedience in us because He's promised to do so. fourth Another reassurance, God's timing is better than our timing. Listen, we have a limited perspective. Abram, I'm sure, would have loved to have the promised land right then. And yet, how much more glorious is it in the grand scheme of the history of the world that God would allow his people to go through 400 years of suffering and then reveal himself, triumphing over all the Egyptian gods, bringing his people out of Egypt, bringing them to the promised land. How much better is God's timing than our timing? Second Peter 3 says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Do not think to yourself, you who are far from Christ, you who are not, you who, you who do not have your faith in Christ, do not think, well, look, Jesus, God hasn't done it. The reason he hasn't done it is because he's being patient with you. That you might turn to him, but I want you to understand he will do it. He will come back, and there will be no more chance. Fifth, circumstances change, but God's character does not. See, Abram's descendants would go to Egypt. They'd become slaves. They'd be afflicted. God would bring his judgment on Egypt and deliver them. And and through all of those circumstantial, circumstantial changes, I'm sure if I was one of those people, depending on where I was in that timeline, I might think that God was different at one point than another. But the reality is, is God's character is the same all the way through. When our life circumstances change, when things go bad or things go good, we start to think that God must be in a mood again. We think God is like a a character in a Snickers commercial. Oh, you must be hangry. Things aren't going very good. But God's character doesn't change. Because his character doesn't change, we know that his promises will be fulfilled. This is the only way we know. Finally, what I want you to see is this. That God's presence goes with his people. Look, if you are Christ's follower, God's presence goes with you. In fact, it's not just in fire or in smoke, but the Holy Spirit actually now lives in you. Yes. Through Christ we have been given the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just come alongside us, he comes in us. And just as the Israelites stood at the foot of Mount Sinai with God's presence right there on the mountain and said, well, I don't know where this Moses character went. Let's build a golden calf. So often we, having the Holy Spirit in us, choose to ignore it and we build up our own idols and we choose to follow those instead. And friends, what I want to say is don't do that. You have God's presence with you. It's so much better. He promises to never leave you. And he reassures it. He guarantees his covenant through his son who came and died for you. And so I don't know what difficulties you're going through. I don't know what doubts you have. But I want you to know this, that in Christ, we are reassured that God will bring us home. And the thing that he started in you, he will finish. He will finish. So whatever it is that you are walking through, I want to remind you, it is worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it.